Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. So we are starting a new series, and the name of that new series is called Kingdom Manifesto, the Beatitudes. And now the Beatitudes come at the very beginning of one of the most famous bodies of teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and the Beatitudes start the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching. But a lot of people have questions about what the Beatitudes are. Uh, The Beatitudes, what are they? Um, And the simple way to say it is that the Beatitudes are Jesus' proclamation of a state of blessedness over his followers. A state of blessedness over his followers. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, The wrong way to look at the Beatitudes is, if I do these things, then God will give me those things. It's not about earning or reward, nor is Jesus saying, hey, listen, if you're my followers, I need you to try and be like this. I need you to try and be poor in spirit. I need you to try and cry some. I need you to try and be humble. Those aren't what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes are a state of blessedness. They're actually encouragements from Jesus about who we already are and are becoming as his disciples. Ray Ortland says it this way, the Beatitudes are not commandments, though they speak with authority. They are not requirements, though they define the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are encouragements. The Beatitudes are encouragements for followers of Jesus who have embraced King Jesus and are living for his kingdom. And Jesus is encouraging us, saying, blessed are you for in embracing this kingdom lifestyle, this is what you get. Blessed are you being poor in spirit. You have become poor in spirit in order to follow me. You have already embraced something. And while the world thinks that that is worth nothing. What you have embraced is actually blessedness in my kingdom. We've had a couple states of blessing that have happened in our church. People have made decisions about their life and entered into a state of blessedness. Uh, We might say, blessed are you, Megan and Dion, in getting engaged, for you will have joy. Just so you know, they're engaged. They gave me permission to say that. Uh, But they've already made a decision about something that they're embracing. And in embracing that, uh, it's a state of great joy. It's a state of blessedness. We might also say, blessed are you, Chad and Ellie. Ellie Ellie went out the back. Blessed are you, Chad and Ellie, because you're about to have another baby. (laughs) And children are a blessing from the Lord. By the way, they told me I could say that as well. But you see, it's something that they've already chosen. And therefore, they've entered into this state of blessedness. We could say even 
that it's not just encouragements, it's congratulations from Jesus. Ray Ortland goes on to say this, the Beatitudes are the congratulations of Jesus who want us to walk with a spring in our step and sparkle in our eye and hope in our heart because God has set us apart to himself and given us graciously everything worth having forever. But here's the thing. All the things that we have embraced in following Jesus seem upside down to the world. Uh, Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness and humility. These are not things that the world values. It's, It's not the way that the world works. It's not the things that the world values. These are not things that the world looks at and goes, oh, those look like blessing. Those are worth being encouraged about. Congratulations. No. In fact, the Beatitudes will not make sense to you if you are building your own kingdom or you're living for the kingdom of this world. Rather than congratulations, the Beatitudes will feel like death. But... For those who are living for King Jesus and are living for the kingdom that he brings into this world, the Beatitudes are meant to deeply encourage you that you are living in a state of blessing from God. But you must understand the good news of the gospel behind that. Ortland finishes his quote by saying this, What is the gospel? It is the good news that God has not forsaken us in all our evil, but the kingdom has come. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, the promised renewal of all things has finally been set in motion. The good news is that this world is not spinning out of control, but heaven is moving in and taking over with powers that evil cannot stop. That's what's happening here on the platform of human history. That's the real story. And through union with Christ, God has included you on the inside of this mega miracle. Whatever your life may be right now, your future is as bright as the promises of God. The Beatitudes are not handy tips for improving your week. They are the enduring promises of Christ. Because you have stepped over the line to join him by faith in a whole new world. So beautiful, only God can accomplish it. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. You will receive mercy. You will see God. You will be called sons and daughters of God. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Be encouraged, people of God. These beatitudes are meant for your encouragement, your congratulations that you have embraced Jesus Christ. And the world offers its own set of beatitudes in a sense. Uh, And there there are rewards for what the world offers. We might say the opposite of the beatitudes would be like this. Congrats to the powerful because they will get to push other people around. Congrats to the vengeful because they will get revenge. Congrats to those who chase happiness because at times they'll get their hands on happiness. Congrats to those who gain influence because people will look up to them. Congrats to those who climb the ladder and climb and climb and climb for theirs is the kingdom of this world. But for us as Christians, ours is the kingdom of heaven. 
Ours is the kingdom of heaven. Living for King Jesus and his kingdom that he brings into this world and embracing that from the heart is meant to bring much encouragement to us and much congratulations for Jesus that we are living in a state of blessedness as his followers. With that in mind, let's read Matthew 5, 1 through 12. I'm going to ask Becky to step up, and um, there'll be some lines that are underlined. And I would like, if you can, here at New City, if you can stand. And when it's time to say that line, if you can follow Becky on the other underlined. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of God. You can sit down. Today we look at blessed are the poor in spirit. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. That's what David writes in Psalm 34, 6. And though David wrote it thousands of years ago, many have found comfort in that verse. There was a man named Al who was part of a church in the Seattle area. He was well into his 70s, well into his 70s, an older man in the church. And whenever the church would have open prayer times, people would pray for various different things. But this 70-year-old named Al would stand up and cry out, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. In fact, Al would do that at almost every prayer meeting. He would stand up and say those words every time. And it began to have an impression on the congregation. It began to have an impression on the rest of the church because the rest of the church was much younger. Most of them were young families a lot of them college students, and to see this older man who would stand up at every prayer meeting and from the heart cry out, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. It made quite an impression on the rest of the church because they knew it wasn't something that he was saying, it was coming from his heart. And it made even more of an impression because Al, well into his 70s, had quite a put-together life. He had had a very successful career. His family seemed to be doing well. He was well-respected. In fact, he was a leader in the church. 
Yet every time there was a prayer meeting, Al would stand up and yell, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. And Al would say that at every prayer meeting because Al was poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. A poor in spirit is about our neediness before God. Now, God has created every human being with dignity because we're made in his image. Yet, because we have rebelled, because we, have, we are sinners, uh, we have distance between us and God, and we are in need of a lot of things. We are in need of mercy. We are in need of the forgiveness of our sins. We owe God a debt for rebelling against him that we cannot pay. And though a lot of people say, I'm a good person, the Bible actually says there is no one who's good, and no one has anything to offer God. In fact, all we have to offer him is our debt for sin. Those who embrace that, those who understand that, begin to develop this characteristic called poverty of spirit. It is looking in and of yourself and seeing the state and the corruption of your own heart before a holy God. And the amazing thing about us who have nothing to offer God but our debt, God offers us salvation through Jesus Christ, and Jesus on the cross pays our debt. The Christian life starts with being poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer God but our sin. But he welcomes us and he forgives us when we place our faith in Christ. But it's not just the entry point, the life posture of being a citizen of God's kingdom, the life posture of being a Christian is poverty of spirit. It's being poor in spirit. Tim Keller kind of says humorously that too often we as Christians become middle class in spirit. And something happens to us at some point where we forget that we have nothing to offer God And yet we start to think God owes us. We start to make demands of God. I want it this way. Now our culture celebrates independence. Our culture celebrates pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and being self-made, having a respectable reputation and being powerful. And in light of that, we often buy into the cultural narrative and forget who we are in front of God and we lose sight of our great need for forgiveness and mercy and grace and love that God gives to us in Jesus Christ. And we begin to set our sights on what we think God owes us. We lose sight of God's holiness. God's holiness is his otherness. He's not like us. He's perfect in all his ways. He's righteous. He's true. He perfectly loves. Every time he gets angry, it is justified because his character is flawless. But we lose sight of comparing ourselves to God's holiness. And if we did, that would produce this great sense of poverty in us. And instead, we begin to compare ourselves to other people. You ever do that? 
compare yourself to other people. And you say, you go from having poverty of spirit to be like, well, I'm not like that poor sap over there. I've worked harder than they have. I'm smarter than they have. I succeeded more than they have. I've suffered more than they have. I get it more than they do. Or my sins are a little more acceptable than theirs are. And all of a sudden we lose that poverty of spirit and really become prideful in spirit because we've lost sight of the holiness of God and instead are comparing ourselves pridefully to each other. Author author Rebecca Pippert talks about a day where she went to two different events. One was a graduate level psychology class at Harvard University. And after that, going to that graduate level psychology class at Harvard University, she walked across the street to go to a Christian Bible study. And what she found when she was at the graduate level psychology class at Harvard was that people in the class during the discussion were open and candid about their neediness. They would say things like, I'm really struggling with anger. I feel overwhelmed by jealousy. I am terribly afraid. All in that, uh, all in that class at Harvard. And then she walked across the street to the Christian Bible study and listened to what all the Christian students were talking about, and no one really had any sense of need. At one point, one student said, I need some prayer because I'm struggling. And that's it. (laughs) That's all that she sensed in terms of their own sense of need. It was interesting because the students at Harvard in the psychology class had a sense of need. They had a sense of inward poverty. Here are all these things inside of me. But what they didn't have is a solution. There was no way to move on from all those things that they were struggling with inside. And then she goes to this Bible study of Christian students from Harvard. And there was no poverty of spirit. But yet they knew where to pray. (laughs) Christians are meant to have both a poverty of spirit and know where to get filled when they're empty. Poverty of spirit really grows as we experience God's holiness, our need before him, and God meeting us in that need. God's holiness, his otherness, his righteousness, his perfection, our lack, our brokenness, our sin, our rebellion, our corruption, and then God meeting us in that gap. That's what really grows poverty of spirit. One of the places we see this most blatantly in scripture is in the prophet Isaiah's life. Now Isaiah was an articulate man. He was a prophet of God. That means he was a mouthpiece of God. And he wrote one of the longest books in the Bible, Isaiah 66. has 66 chapters. Now, I don't know what Isaiah's state was before he gets to chapter 6, but chapter 6 is very interesting. Isaiah, the mouthpiece of God, the one who's articulate, the one who speaks for God, sees the Lord seated high and on a lofty throne, and the hem of the Lord's robe fills the temple. All of a sudden, Isaiah is in the presence of God. 
And just the hem of God's throne fills the temple. This is a scene of God's glory. It says that seraphim angels were standing above God. They each had six wings. And because God was even so much more holy than the angels, two of them, they, with two of the wings, the angels covered their faces. And with two of them, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 6, the angels called back and forth across the throne of God, saying, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. In the Hebrew, when you say something three times, it means 100 times a thousand times a billion. In other words, God is perfectly holy. Listen up. And as the angels declare the perfection of God, the foundation of the doorways of the temple shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple is filled with smoke. And here is Isaiah standing in the presence of the holy God. The man who's the mouthpiece of God, the one who is articulate. What does he say? Verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. See, in the presence of a holy God, he becomes very aware of his moral corruption. Even the best thing about him, his mouth, as the prophet of God, he sees, is filled with corruption. I don't know, I can relate to that too. How easy is it to gossip? How easy is it to tell a little white lie? How easy is is it to hide the truth? These things just spew out of us. But what I love about Isaiah is he doesn't say, I'm before a holy God and my lips are a little bit better than everybody else. No. What does he say? Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips. And in the presence of God, I live among a people who have unclean lips. We're all in this together. Before God, I have no hope. I'm just like everybody else. Even though I'm the prophet of God, I am corrupt. And he realizes that he needs the forgiveness and mercy and grace of God. He's not above the people. He's part of their sin and brokenness and rebellion. He's got nothing to offer God before God. He's like everybody else. Isn't there a great lesson in there for us as we talk about being impoverished of spirit? There's a great saying that many Christians have said, and it says, there but for the grace of God go I. In other words, when you see someone doing something that you think is repulsive, we're allowed to talk about sin, but rather than judging them from a pedestal, you, you can say, I know my heart. I know that I'm really no different than them. There but for the grace of God go I. If it wasn't for God's grace and mercy, I might be doing the very same thing they're doing. 
And there are probably things that I don't know that I'm doing that I need grace and mercy for. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Well, in light of our sin, God doesn't just sweep it under a rug. Sin deserves judgment. And here Isaiah has exposed, is exposed with his sin before the Lord. And this terrifying scene happens next. One of the angels begins flying towards Isaiah with this vision of the Lord in the temple. And on his way, the angel picks up a burning hot coal from the altar. Except it's so hot, the angel doesn't even use his hands. The angel uses tongs. And he begins flying towards Isaiah with the tongs holding the burning hot coal. And you think, oh no, here it is. Isaiah, you have seen the corruption of your own mouth before a holy God, and you are about to get smited. You're about to get it. You're about to get judgment. The angel comes near in verse 7, and he touches Isaiah's lips. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity, your sin is removed and your sin is atoned for. Rather than being burned in judgment, Isaiah is forgiven. Isaiah is forgiven. He's atoned for. His his slate is wiped clean. Well, we still might be wondering, as a lesson, did God seal his mouth shut when he burned it with the coal? Verse 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah opens his mouth. His mouth works. And he says, here I am. Send me. And in verse 9, I love this. The first thing that the Lord says is, go, say. What follows next is secondary. But the Lord tells him, go, represent me, and use the very thing that you needed forgiveness for. Use your mouth. You were a man of unclean lips, but now your sin is wiped away. Go tell a people of unclean lips. What would have happened if God had just said, go, say, and Isaiah had not had that experience of God's holy? He had not had that experience of his own impoverishment before the Almighty God. The Beatitudes start with this sense of poverty, of emptying, of recognizing that there is nothing in us worthy of God's love. There's nothing in us that we can offer him to get him on our side. And oftentimes, as Christians, we get that when we first become Christians, but somewhere along the line, we lose that poverty of spirit and instead become prideful of spirit because we lose the view of God's holiness. Ellie and I were talking this week about how this feels like a season of emptying and emptiness. In other words, the layers of our lives keep getting pulled back and back, and there's just been more loss, and there's been more lack. There's literally things in our lives that are 
we're losing. We're losing paychecks. We're losing homes. We're losing loved ones. And as that happens, the layers of our own soul get exposed, and we see things in our lives that we do not like. And in our pride, we often try and fill up those things that are emptied out. We fill it up with addiction. Uh, We fill it up with status. We fill it up with trying to look good or look better than the next, next person. Or we cover it up. All that is pride of spirit. But see, the, the person who's poor in spirit doesn't need to fill up their own soul, nor do they need to cover up their own soul. They just need to bring their soul to God. They need to bring their soul to God because the person who's poor in spirit can get exposed for who they really are and they can say this, woe is me, but Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ has met my impoverished soul and he is changing me. He has forgiven me. He is using me. He is including me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not the powerful, not the mighty, not the ones who have it all together, not those who who are running politics, not the wealthy, but the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, poverty of spirit is the way to have the deepest encounter and experience with Jesus Christ and all that he offers for you. And that's why everything is upside down, isn't it? (laughs) Poor in spirit. No, no, no. We want to be prideful in spirit. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus Christ returns you will get to be part of what he does in making all things new. But you don't have to wait for it. He's doing it now through you. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Not the powerful, not the mighty, not the influencers, not the rich. The poor in spirit. So much of life is about getting earning, achieving, climbing, crushing, whatever. But those that recognize their emptiness, those that see their internal corruption, those that see that they let them go and they'll make a a mess of their own lives, those that see that they're really powerless before God and have nothing to offer God, those that because of that poverty turn to Christ, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They get to be part of Jesus making all things new. They get to inherit the new heavens and the new earth. The life posture of a Christian is poor in spirit. So when you see how powerful people in the world are, don't be discouraged. When when you see other people climbing the ladder and you feel like you're being left behind, Don't lose heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every day, you can wake up because of what Jesus has done. You can wake up and cry out, 
this poor man or woman cried, and the Lord heard him or her and saved them from all their troubles. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him, saved him from all his troubles. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.